Leo Tolstoy famously stated that his 1869 work, War and Peace, is not a novel, still less an epic poem, and still less an historical chronicle. However, lovers of categorization may still want to fit it into one of these three boxes. One look at its length, approximately 1,200 pages in modern English editions, and subject matter, Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812, make the claim of an epic, if not a poem, certainly understandable. War and Peace takes the reader to many locations, and introduces the reader to many characters, all over a significant period of time. It attempts to tell the story of an entire country and an entire people during a particular moment of its history. In these respects, it is difficult to argue that War and Peace is not an epic, in its scale at the very least. As for it being a novel, one must only look at the deep characterizations, the dramatic set pieces, the drawing rooms and ballrooms and bedrooms. It has all the trappings of a 19th century novel, romance, adultery, duels, gambling debts. And yet, we cannot count out the historical chronicle either, depictions of important battles, the moods and attitudes of historical figures, the movements of armies, all these abound in War and Peace. The question, what is this book, will probably bother such categorizers forever. And while this concern is entirely semantic in the end, it also feels important for understanding War and Peace as whatever it actually is. Whatever you end up deciding it is, whether that's an epic, a novel, an epic novel, a history, an historical novel, or an historical novelistic epic, when you cannot help but feeling is that War and Peace is unlike anything else out there. It contains much of what we associate with 19th century novels, but then much more besides. It contains much of what we might expect from a chronicle of war, but then much more besides. It contains much theorizing about the nature of a nation, the nature of a people, and the nature of war itself, but then much more besides. At the heart of War and Peace are its three primary characters, Andrei Bolkonsky, Pierre Bezukhov, and Natasha Rostov. Their backgrounds, their families, and their stories bring the reader into familiar, relatable territory. Andrei, Pierre, and Natasha are real people, not in the sense that they are based on historical figures, but in the sense that they inhabit that small section of the world that we call everyday life. Andre, Pierre, and Natasha fall in love. They fall out of love. They get angry and then upset and then happy. Or they get happy and then angry and then upset. They talk to their parents. If they have parents, they chat with their friends. If they have friends, and they eat dinner. Andre, Pierre, and Natasha are the warmth of war and peace. They are the living and breathing embodiments of this people or nation that Tolstoy wishes to describe. In the grand scheme of the Napoleonic War, in the grand scheme of European history or history in general, they are unimportant. They don't win and they don't lose battles. They don't rewrite constitutions or redraw borders. Instead, they live. They live in their own small worlds, and yet, their stories, small as they are, encapsulate the infinity that is human life. But War and Peace also has a cold side. It is a side in which battles are planned and executed. It is a side in which armies march through the cold and the damp, 
and in which thousands are killed in cold blood for the sake of a pursuit that none of them fully understand. It is a side in which honor and glory are synonymous with bloodshed and murder. This side of war and peace contains pontifications as to the nature of generalship and of leadership in general. It contains perhaps overly detailed descriptions of artillery placements, troop movements, and strategic meetings. It contains perhaps too much ballyhooing about the futility of giving orders to thousands of people and expecting them to do what you tell them to do. And yet in war and peace, these two sides are not entirely distinct. The warmth of André, Pierre, and Natasha's lives are imposed upon by the consequences of war, both directly and indirectly. The directions of their journeys are irreparably altered by this invasion. They cannot escape the times in which they live. Conversely, the battles in war and peace are not shown exclusively from some omniscient perspective. We charge in the front lines. We shoot and are shot at. Cannonballs fire across our brow, and smoke fills our lungs. In the midst of all this terror and killing are experiences so genuinely human that it makes us wonder how, or why, or again how, all these people are convinced to march across the world in order to murder each other. War and peace is war, and it's peace. For the peace contains within it that tiny shadow of war, and the war contains within it, bursting like rays of sun through the cover of clouds, glimpses of peace. In order to understand any of this, in order to grasp at all any of what Tolstoy wishes to communicate with this uncategorizable work that we can all agree at least to call literature, we must first meet, understand, and grow to love our three primary characters. You are listening to Balkwell's Books, a literary podcast about literature. I am your host, Balkwell, and I'd like to welcome you to the show. Today we are talking about uh, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. You may have heard of this book. You may even have read this book, but uh, you've never listened to an audio program in which I talk about this book unless... You're listening to this for a second time, and uh, that's the tagline of the show. This is episode one of Balkwell's books, so please excuse any rough edges. Still learning how to make a show such as this, uh, so thank you for your patience in that regard. And that's all I've got, so let's get back to the show. I'm going to talk about Andrei Bolkonsky and Natasha Rostov together in this section, because their stories are more intertwined than any other two characters in the book. When they meet, they change each other's lives. When they separate, they change each other's lives again. When they meet for a second or third time, it's too late now for their lives to be changed, and with this recognition, they appreciate each other in an entirely new and different way. Andrei Bolkonsky is a serious, practical man. He is a soldier and an officer. He is silent and assertive. He doesn't like society or the city and prefers to live in the countryside and manage his estates. He's grounded, at times almost too grounded, to the point where he struggles to see beyond the material world that lies in front of him. 
he has a tendency for cynicism and nihilism. Natasha Rostov is a carefree young woman. She loves to sing and dance and play around, like most children do. She loves to be the center of attention. She loves to be heard and seen and appreciated and loved. When we first meet Natasha, she is flirting with a boy she likes. She's only 13, and flirtation is still an innocent game. The boy's name is Boris, and he's a friend of the family. He's going to join the army soon. Natasha loves him because she thinks it's amusing to love someone who's going to join the army soon. There's a certain joy in convincing oneself that one is in love with someone who's going away soon. It can feel like you're in a play or in a novel. For Natasha, it's fun because she's young and the things she does don't really matter yet. She's breaking her own heart on purpose, just to see what happens. It's like going out on the night when becomes legal drinking age and getting way too drunk and having a terrible time. It sucks and it hurts and one feels miserable, but there's a certain charm to knowing that you did this to yourself and that now you know what it's like to do that sort of thing to yourself. We see here a little bit of Natasha's frivolity. She doesn't care for Boris, not in the way that her cousin Sonia cares for the boy that she loves. It's all just a sort of game, and she can get away with it because she's Natasha, and everyone loves her, and they'll continue to love her no matter what she does. In the end, both her and Boris choose to forget this childish relationship later. Boris because he desires a more wealthy bride, and Natasha because she doesn't think that Boris can even provide her with the love that she needs. When we first meet Andre, he is entering Anna Pavlovna's soiree that serves as an introduction to many of the book's principal characters. He is bored and tired, and he has grown to hate everyone he is about to spend the evening with. Particularly, he dislikes his wife, who is his polar opposite. She loves society, she loves chatting, she loves frivolity. Andre is leaving for the army soon. He wants to go somewhere real, somewhere tangible. Andre is fleeing not only from his wife, but from his family life in the country as well. His father is a tyrannical old man, ruling over his household according to his old man whims, and Andre's sister Marie is his primary victim. She turns to extreme religious devotion as an ease for her constant suffering under her father's iron grip, which alienates her from Andre, who finds it difficult to reconcile this love of God with the world he sees all around him. When Natasha and Andre first meet, it is a one-sided meeting. Andre, after being almost killed during battle, and then losing his wife in childbirth, has developed a supremely pessimistic view of the world. His search for glory in battle, he believes, has been his undoing, and now he is living out his punishment. He has no regard for the dignity of humanity as a whole, and occupies himself solely with the petty concerns of his life, managing his estate and caring for his father, sister, and son. When Pierre visits and begins espousing the universal love and purpose he has found in Freemasonry, of which more later, André is unimpressed. He can see no justification for such a universal love. 
His mental state at this time is best described by his relationship with a certain oak tree that he passes on the road, on his way to check on some of his more distant estates. It is an ugly, scarred, enormous oak, sitting in the midst of the glorious spring with what seems a scowl on its face and a disdain for this most pleasant of seasons. Andre imagines this oak deriding the youthful naivete of the flowers blooming around it, confident in its aged and wise cynicism. Always the same, and always a deception, it cries, motionless, ugly, and stubborn. Andre cheers on this oak of his imagination and agrees wholeheartedly. Life is over, he thinks. There's nothing new for him to do, nothing to be wished for, just a long road of monotonous comfort ahead before death. His only wish is not to do evil, to keep his head out of everything worldly and to live on without further anxiety. But during his trip, he pays a visit to the Rostovs, who live nearby, and here he encounters Natasha. I would not say that they meet exactly, because they don't share a single word during this first encounter, and Natasha doesn't seem to notice Andre's existence at all. But Andre is struck by her joy and mirth, and can't help but wonder what it is about this world that she can possibly find so joyful. Her life and her concerns are so foreign to him, so opposed to and ignorant of his very existence, that it pains him. He wants her to see him and recognize him, and in this way he is almost returned to a youthful form of unrequited love. He leaves at once, frightened by his new emotions, and on the way back he once again encounters the oak from before. Yes, he says to himself, here in this woods was that oak I agreed with. But it is no longer ugly. Now it is covered in beautiful greenery that shines in the sun. Andre realizes that even such an old and gnarled oak can still bloom, and that life is never quite over. He realizes that he doesn't have to live just for himself and his family, but can live for everyone, can love everyone, just like Pierre told him he could, and just like that strange young girl Natasha seems to live. Andre is inspired to return to society, and begins to live in St. Petersburg, where eventually he meets Natasha again, this time at a ball. It is Natasha's first ball, and she is so thrilled that she forgets that anything other than good or love can exist in this world. She is in love with everyone. Andre and Natasha dance. While they dance, Andre is once again in awe of her rejuvenating spirit. He falls in love with her. Natasha, as I mentioned before, is in love with everyone. Natasha's view of this specific dance is not entirely clear. These first few meetings are all told to us entirely from Andre's perspective, and aside from his skillful dancing and his politeness, there is not much to indicate that Natasha views him any differently from the rest of the men and boys she danced with and fell in love with on that night. She is still but 16 years old, and one feels that she is almost ready to give herself to anyone who shows her the right attentions. Andre begins to visit the Rostovs often, 
and then it quickly becomes clear that Natasha is the reason for these visits. He listens to her sing, engages her in conversation, and praises her incessantly. Natasha is a little afraid of him, possibly because of his seriousness. She has never before known a love so serious. Now that she has debuted in society, love is no longer a childish game, but a serious affair, a lifelong attachment. She begins to worry about the future, about marrying him or not marrying him, and becomes lost as to what she really wants. She wishes to be loved and married, but to him specifically, she's not so sure. When Andre leaves suddenly to ask his father for permission to propose to Natasha, she is left alone and bereft of his attentions. She falls into a depression. She does not know why he's left, and she can't understand it. Does he not love her anymore? But he returns after a few weeks and asks for her hand. As Natasha enters the room where she knows he is going to propose, she asks herself, Can it be that this stranger has now become everything to me? As soon as the words of proposal leave André's mouth, everything changes for both of them. André realizes the true meaning of this proposal, that he must now care for this young and innocent girl, not as a mysterious and delightful enigma that flits through his vision, but as a wife towards whom he has a duty. And Natasha realizes that she is now grown up, that she is now engaged to a man that even her father respects, and that she is finally encumbered with certain responsibilities. <clears throat> it is now that Andre reveals to her that a whole year must pass before they can be married, a stipulation demanded by his intransigent father. Andre feels that this time will allow Natasha to determine for sure whether she truly loves him or not, or whether it is just a passing fancy. He's worried about her youth, that... He's imposing himself on her life before she's had time to understand herself. But for Natasha, the delay is pure agony. This proposal has changed her life, has turned her from a girl into a woman, and yet now there is this year in between during which her life is essentially on hold. No longer allowed to act as a child, but not yet enacting her duties as a wife, she's in a strange and confusing in-between. We see her with her family still in much the same position as before, living as a child in her parents' home. But there is a gloom that reaches her when she is alone, as she worries and wonders about Andre's feelings, about his health, and about whether this is all really such a good idea after all. When examined in this way, and particularly when considering what is to happen next, it seems that Tolstoy is playing with the reader's idea of a love story. We have seen Natasha's childish love with Boris, and how it came to naught in the end, with neither of them really being too fussed about it. When it comes to Natasha and Andre, it feels different, if only because we know Andre well, we know he is not as fickle and hungry for status as Boris is. But it is hard to say that Natasha's feelings are that much different than before. There's no reason for her to have grown up in the meantime, no event that has made her particularly more mature. She's 
just been debuted in society, and we have seen how enamored she is with the attentions that it provides. Any reader hoping for an easy and romantic love story, a category which included myself on first reading, will find the next part of Natasha's story the hardest to stomach. With only a few months left before her marriage to Andre, after almost a year of waiting, Natasha attends an opera with her family. Earlier that day, she had had her first encounter with Andre's family, his father and sister, and it was awkward and uncomfortable for everyone. She is distressed by this animosity between her and her betrothed's family, and wishes Andre could appear before her and set it all right. She wants none of this complexity, none of this social discomfort. She wants the pure, unearthly love she shares with Andre. She wants to devote herself wholly to this love without worrying about anyone else. But Andre isn't around. It is in this sort of mind, and this, with this mind anxious and desperate for love, that Natasha meets Anatole Kurrigan. Anatole is the brother of Pierre's wife, of whom we will learn much more about later. Anatole is a satanic tempter, an immoral being whose purpose in life seems to be hedonistic pleasures and the conquests of love. He sets his eyes on Natasha, for whatever reason, and with the help of his sister, begins to employ his devilish ways. Natasha, in her vulnerable state of mind, in her innocence, and most importantly in her vanity, falls for him. From their first meeting, she feels that something has been taken from her, that by her feelings for Anatole, she has already been lost to sin, and is no longer worthy of Andre's love. This new love, she feels, is distinctly different from Andre's. While Andre is cold and tender, Anatole is fiery and passionate. She, se she seems swallowed up by his love, as if she is caught in his grasp from the moment he sets eyes on her. Anatole plans an elopement. Natasha, in her confusion, decides that since her relationship with Andre is already too complex, with his family and her now premature betrayal, well, her relationship with Anatole is, in a bizarre sense, pure, in that it is simple and stupid and has only just begun. In her way, Natasha believes herself to be the center of the universe. Her happiness and beauty is the happiness and beauty of everyone around her, and her sadness and anger is the sadness and anger of the entire world. This is a perfectly fine way to be when one is a child. In fact, it's partially expected that a child will see the world in this way. And to a certain extent, Natasha is a child throughout the whole book, apart from the epilogue. But as a child, Natasha is debuted. As a child, she's brought out into society and into the company of adults, and she is made to learn in a horrible fashion the consequences of her childish worldview. Natasha is tragic because her fall is, in a sense, because of her innocence instead of her guilt. She simply doesn't know any better than to love being loved, and to her love is being loved. So used to the attentions of others, she doesn't realize that this attention isn't the same as love, that this attention 
isn't about giving her what she wants, but about using her for someone else's needs. In a way, both Andre and Anatole both use Natasha in this way. They are men that want her innocence. They want her youthfulness. They want her because they feel that she can make their life better in some way. In a certain sense, Anatole and Natasha aren't that different either. Both of them just want to be loved. It's just that Anatole understands the nature of the type of love that he wants, whereas Natasha doesn't understand until too late that this way of being loved isn't worth that much at all. To Anatole, making people love him is its own reward. It's amusing and diverting. The love Natasha knows is the love of family, the type of love that loves you just for being you and wants you to be happy. In her mind, that's the only love that exists, and is beautiful. Her confusion, then, is not understanding the difference between what Anatole feels for her and what her mom or her brother feels, or even what Pierre feels for her. Anatole and Natasha's elopement is found out and stopped, and all is ruined, for Natasha at least. Anatole is barely affected at all. He has no reputation, and he has no care for others' feelings. To Anatole, life is a nihilistic joke, and the failure of his plan is even funnier than its success ever could have been. When Andre is confronted with Natasha's fall, he gives up on her, and perhaps fairly so. He sees that she's not what she said she was, and in a way this confirms his cynical suspicions about the world. The Natasha that he thought he knew wasn't real. He had made it up, because he needed something like that Natasha to exist, or else he wouldn't have anything at all. Pierre who, I promise, we will understand in much more depth later, is greatly saddened, both for Natasha and for Andre. He understands Andre's reaction, but at the same time, he doesn't feel that it's quite fair. He's willing to forgive Natasha. He knows that she's young and innocent and simply made a mistake. He knows that she's not really like Anatole. He knows because he knows a woman who's like Anatole his wife, Hélène, Anatole's sister. He knows what a truly narcissistic, flighty, and uncaring woman is like, and he knows that Natasha is nothing like Hélène. He's known Natasha for a long time, and they love each other, in a way where they don't really care what the other does. They just love each other for being who they are and doing what they want to do. It's a love without qualifications or conditions. This is the love that Natasha thinks she's getting from Anatole, and thinks she's getting from Andre, but it seems that only Pierre has the purity of heart to really provide. Natasha loves to be loved, but we don't get the sense that she needs to be loved by a multiplicity of people, or by the whole of society, like Helen does. She wants a concentrated love, a singular monogamous love that is all-encompassing and infinite in itself. As such, she doesn't mind that Anatole is going to steal her away from her family and ruin her reputation in society. She feels that she wouldn't need all that if she had his love, if his love was true, which we know it's not, but she thinks it is. 
Natasha and Andre's engagement is nullified. Natasha falls into illness and depression, while Andre returns to his secluded life, eventually heading off into the army once again. War and Peace is a story of false steps, of setting out on journeys that only lead you right back to where you began. Andre tried out love and found it once again not to his liking. He tried living in the world and found that the people there are just as inconsistent and malicious as they have always been. If the book ended here, we could say that he learned a lesson, a deeply depressing and pessimistic lesson, but a lesson nonetheless. But Tolstoy's heart is too large to allow the story to end here. While his characters are deeply flawed and he often treats them with ironic disdain, deep down he loves them for their flaws, because he loves them for their humanity. To leave them here would leave us with a cynical view of the world, and would encourage us to close our hearts, which is the exact opposite of Tolstoy's intention. During Napoleon's invasion, Andre is fatally injured in battle, and is carted off toward Moscow. Natasha and her family are preparing to flee Moscow. All of Moscow is fleeing, leaving the city but an empty corpse when Napoleon sets his foot within the walls. After her long period of depression, Natasha, through the curative effects of time, has returned to good spirits. Nothing around her reminds her anymore of her failed loves, and she returns to playing around with her younger brother Petya, as they have since they were children. When the time comes to evacuate the house, she insists on allowing the wounded to stay in their home, and then convinces her parents to abandon many of their possessions in order to use the extra carts to carry wounded soldiers out of Moscow. Are we some sort of Germans? She declares, one of approximately a thousand snide remarks about the German people peppered throughout the book. She does this in a simple, innocent way, not thinking of the pecuniary effects nor of the moral virtues of such an act, but acting purely under the influence of a sort of innocent, childish whim. Little does she know that Andre is among the wounded that she invites to travel with them. When the family finds out, they decide to keep it a secret from her, for fear that he'll once more send her into despair. But the secret is not kept for long. Natasha's cousin Sonia finds it impossible to hide the truth from her, and after finding out, Natasha sneaks into Andre's room in the middle of the night. Andre, in his wounded state, has come upon a new view of the world. Like we will find with Pierre later, being deprived of the basic necessities of life, such as motion or freedom from physical pain, has revealed to him some essential truth. This truth is embodied in the word love. Seeing Anatole lying close to death on a bed near him in the hospital, Andre finds it easy now to forgive him. His new love is not a human love, but a divine love, a love that flows from him toward all people, a love consisting of pure mercy. In his room in the small country home he shares with the Rostovs, Andre is thinking of this new form of love he has found, and he is thinking of Natasha. He is seeing her as all she is, the loveliness he always knew, but also the shame and the guilt and 
the repentance. He understands that it was cruel to leave her to her fall, and he wishes to forgive her. It is in this moment that she appears before him. Now, when all is lost between them, when Andre is on the verge of death, they are able to love each other in a brand new way. It is no longer the confused love of a naive girl and a cynical man. Now it is a pure love, two souls connected by a strange situation. Their lives and homes are abandoned and destroyed. They are in a state of refugistic retreat, and they have nothing else but each other to rely on. Natasha nurses Andre, not with the idea that he will recover and they will marry and live happily, but with the knowledge that he will die, and that all she can do now is ease his suffering before this happens. Natasha, it seems, has too learned to love. Before, she loved as a result of being loved. Now, even thinking that Andre should hate her and that he shouldn't forgive her for what she's done, she wishes to devote herself to him. Perhaps this as a product of her guilt, or a product of the shame brought on by her vain pride. We can't know for sure, but as far as the reader can tell, it is the product of love. Natasha, since Anatole's attempted corruption, has become simple, as seen in her insistence on taking the wounded in their family's carts. She no longer feels the same anxieties she once knew. She loves Andre now almost out of instinct. By the time his sister Marie arrives to see him, Andre is already most of the way departed from this world. He seems to float above the earth, the concerns of the world appearing tiny and inconsequential. The war, the grief, and even his death are uninteresting. All he can think of is love. Love of God, and through the love of God, love for all that God has created. And yet at the same time, to renounce this world God created. Because to love in the way that Andre has learned to love means to sacrifice one's very self. It is only in death that such a love is possible. Andre realizes that as soon as he comes to know this new form of love, life is truly over for him. In their final moments together, Andre and Natasha are redeemed. By being pulled away from the mundane world of social life and into an elevated and strange circumstance, they are able to recover something pure. It is through war and its sufferings that they discover an inner peace. In this new and simple state, they are able to be together not as individuals within a complex social web, but as two pure souls. Natasha's vanity and Andre's cynicism and the sins that resulted from these qualities are revealed to be extraneous. They are the product, perhaps, of their old environment. Inside, deep inside, Tolstoy believes that they are simple, that we are simple, and that in our simplicity we are capable of a love much deeper than we might otherwise believe. I realized while writing this that it is impossible for me to talk about Pierre from War and Peace without talking about everything 
about Pierre. Pierre Bezukhov is my favorite character in all of literature. He is a relatable fool, an absent-minded dreamer, a man without a plan, and he is a hero. Pierre is the ultimate embodiment of the literary bumbler, a class of characters who wander around without the slightest clue of what they're supposed to be doing. Pierre's problem is that he has dreams, he has aspirations, and he has ideas, but he has no idea how to transfer these from the world of thought into the world of reality. In fact, he barely seems to understand how the world of reality works at all. He just doesn't seem to fit in, or he always feels like he's missing some knowledge that everyone else has, although what that knowledge is is hard to say exactly. While he sometimes follows the pasts that are well-tread, he never seems to quite embody these roles he takes on. It's always as if he's acting out someone else's character. I was talking to a friend recently about War and Peace, and he mentioned offhand, you don't want to be like Pierre. I took umbrage to this statement at the time because I love Pierre, but on further reflection, I realized we were talking about two different Pierres. At the beginning of War and Peace, Pierre is a careless man swept up in the ne'er-do-well activities of his idiot friends. He takes no agency and simply bumbles his way through his life. But Pierre is also a gentle and kind man, with a keen sense of justice that coexists somewhat awkwardly with a Christian sense of forgiveness. Pierre, more than any other character in the novel, discovers that which all of us strive for. He discovers how to be himself. When we first encounter Pierre, he is attending Anna Pavlovna's soiree in St. Petersburg, where we also met André. He's been away outside of Russia for some time and has been influenced by the ideas out there. This, combined with his innate clumsiness, makes him an awkward dinner guest. He starts conversations that no one wants to have and espouses opinions that no one is supposed to have. While doing all this, he has no idea that he's doing all this. He knows, at least, that he's doing something wrong. He knows this as soon as he walks in the door. He knows that he's doing something wrong because he's always doing something wrong. Saying the wrong thing, or walking the wrong way, or thinking the wrong thought. Pierre is a big man. He's tall. He's wide. He's big. This gargantuosity of his makes him stick out. No one can help but notice what he is doing. It also contributes to his awkwardness. He's just a little bit too big for this world. Late in the evening, Pierre is talking to his friend André. André tells Pierre not to get married. He asks Pierre what he's going to do with himself now that he's back in Russia. Pierre says that he doesn't know what he's going to do. André tells Pierre to at least stop hanging out with his idiot friends. He says that it doesn't suit him. Pierre, in the first of many sudden flashes of inspiration, agrees with André. He says that he's been thinking about this for a long time, that he needs to make a change in his life. He gives André his word of honor, that he will no more go out and drink with his idiot friends. Then, Pierre goes out to drink with his idiot friends. 
He justifies this to himself using some limp form of reasoning, but in truth he goes simply out of habit. His higher ideals and convictions have no sway over him. He's swept away by the current of fancy. In these first few scenes, we come to understand Pierre as always agreeable and easily suggestible, eager to please both his lofty ideals and his material passions, and therefore led headlong, time and time again, into contradiction and inactivity. Suddenly, in a turn of events shocking even for himself, Pierre inherits a grand title, and with it, a massive fortune. He becomes a much sought-after bachelor. His absent-mindedness and naivete make him an easy target. Before he knows it, he's married to a woman he cares for not at all. He becomes engaged to her by showing up where people ask him to show up, and talking to the person they want him to talk to. He becomes engaged simply by never saying no. The woman who is now his wife is Hélène, the sister of Anatole, the man who later seduces Natasha. Now married and with a massive fortune, Pierre has accomplished entirely by accident and through none of his own doing two of society's most valued criterion of success. Now, having crossed the finish line of a marathon that he did not even run, a marathon that consisted of being picked up and gingerly dropped off by helicopter, Pierre begins his own journey. His own journey has no preconceived or blocked-off route through the busy streets of a metropolis. His journey has no start line, no finish line, no checkpoints, and no timer. Pierre needs to answer the question that no one ever wishes to ask themselves. What do I do now? This is where Pierre's immensity comes into full four. The answer to the big question, what do I do now, requires a big answer. Pierre's answer to this question must be as oversized as he is. His answer must be world-changing. Pierre believes that along with his wealth and status, he has gained a certain responsibility. Not a superficial responsibility such as appearing dignified and noble, but a real concrete responsibility to drastically alter the course of world events. But such an answer is hard to find, and in the meantime Pierre finds himself once again at the whims of society. Rumors begin to circulate about his wife Hélène and his rabble-rousing friend Dolokhov. Pierre doesn't like his wife. He doesn't care at all if she is seeing some other guy. However, he feels compelled by the nature of honor that is preached by high society to challenge Dolokhov to a duel. He doesn't like the way people are looking at him, and particularly, he doesn't like the way Dolokhov is looking at him. But Pierre has misunderstood something. He's misunderstood himself, and he's the only person who doesn't realize it. His friends, and even Dolokhov, tell him that this just isn't like him. This is not what Pierre should be doing. He's better than all this. Everyone somehow knows that Pierre is better than whatever it is that he is, and yet Pierre keeps thinking that the only way to live is to sink deeper into the well-grooved ruts of society. He can't be talked out of the duel. Miraculously, he wins. He fires at Dolokhov, and he hits him, despite 
never having fired a gun in his life. He hits him square in the torso, and Dolokhov falls to the ground, bleeding and dying. We find out here that Dolokhov has a mother. I mean, of course, we, we knew he had a mother. Everyone has a mother. But somehow we didn't really expect Dolokhov to have a mother that we ever learned about. He has a sister, too, a hunched-back sister that he supports and takes care of. Dolokhov's mother and sister think, like many other mothers and sisters think about their delinquent sons and delinquent brothers, that he's a good guy, really. He's a nice boy. Pierre learns this at the same time as we learn this, and he's struck by his own depravity. He thinks that he's killed Dolokhov. He chooses to suffer the grief of this by himself. He doesn't go out, he doesn't drink, he just sits alone and tries to figure out what it is that he's done and why he's done it. He doesn't understand anything that he's done in his life. He doesn't know why he got this huge fortune, and he doesn't know why he married his wife, and he doesn't know why he felt compelled to fight a duel on her behalf. Elen shows up and begins to berate him for his foolish behavior. Pierre explodes in anger. Pierre is a large, intimidating man, but for the most part, he's a gentle giant. He's loved by children, and everyone who sees him sees him as someone that they want to like, for whatever reason. But Pierre, a few times in this novel, simply loses it. And the first time is this moment when his wife accosts him for fighting a meaningless duel, a duel that is detrimental to her reputation. This explosion of Pierre's is probably not justified. Pierre has put himself in this situation through his own weakness, and now he's angry that someone else is getting angry at him while he's trying to be angry at himself. He picks up a piece of marble and slams it to the ground, and he approaches his wife and tells her that he's going to kill her. He feels in this moment the enthusiasm and enchantment of rage, but it's a rage that has no purpose and no meaning. Pierre's rage here is just animal rage. He's ashamed and he's scared and he's latching out, and God knows what could have happened if Hélène had not run out of the room. After this talk with his wife, Pierre leaves Moscow for St. Petersburg. On the way, he meets a gentle old man. The man knows who Pierre is. He tells Pierre that he wants to help him out, as only an old man can help a young man by offering advice. Pierre recognizes that the man is a mason. He belongs to the Brotherhood of the Freemasons. Pierre doesn't have the highest opinion of the Freemasons for reasons that aren't explained to us, but he feels that he likes this old man already, even having just met him. The man explains the nature of the Freemasons, of their thoughts regarding God and his qualities, and the possibility or impossibility of understanding these qualities as a mortal being. Pierre listens, not as a man being convinced by rational argument, but as a child listens, hearing not the words, maybe, but the tone, the intonation, and the emotion in the man's voice. Pierre has another revelation. He finds in this brotherhood a purpose, a purpose so lofty and mighty that it has little to do with the affairs of the world at all. Pierre doesn't know how to live in this world, 
Everything he has done here has turned out terribly. He thinks that perhaps it's the world that's the problem, that he's really meant for bigger things. He chooses to commit himself wholeheartedly to masonry. He reads the books and joins the Brotherhood. He comes up with grand ideas for reforming Europe and promoting peace and fraternity and love throughout the world. He feels, finally, that he's doing something good. He feels, finally, that someone has given him something nice to do, that instead of following streams that lead into dark grottos, he somehow found one that leads to a pleasant pond, where the sun always shines and pretty birds sing in the air. Pierre, because of his duel, is now an outcast from society, and feels himself totally detached from his former life. He decides that he should leave the city and travel to his estates. He wants to free his serfs. Now, Russia in the early 19th century was still primarily a feudal state. All of the noble families in this book own large estates on which serfs tend the land and act as domestic servants. The idea of abolition of serfdom is still but an idea. It technically could be done in a legal sense, but it wasn't done. Pierre, as one of the largest landowners in the country, thanks to his inheritance, is attempting to do the impossible. Of course, Pierre has no idea how to actually do the impossible, because the only way to do the impossible is to reckon with the possible. He doesn't know anything about his estates or the conditions of the peasantry or anything like that. He has nothing but ideas, ideas about liberty and education and welfare. Unlike André, he doesn't know how to work. He makes himself busy meeting with his steward and discussing business decisions and transactions, but in the end simply agrees with whatever is presented to him, and at the end of the day feels that all his busy work has not made any difference at all to the goings-on of his estates. However, Pierre still feels a certain pride in these actions. He has achieved nothing but the flattery of his steward and the other landowners in the province, who are impressed only by his wealth, convince him that he is accomplishing good deeds and acting virtuously. He feels in his pride that he is coming closer to his own ideal. All of this is empty vanity, the kind of pride that comes to those who sit atop ivory towers and point down at the world from above, never deigning to drop down and actually pay that world a visit. This is when Pierre goes to see André in the midst of André's depression. We see them here meeting at opposite poles, Pierre at the height of his charitable enthusiasm, and André at the nadir of his cynicism and reclusiveness. Although we won't see the effects immediately, a little bit of what Pierre says gets through to André, and a little bit of what André says gets through to Pierre. Pierre returns home, and he devotes himself even more enthusiastically to his Freemason activities. But at the same time, he has become somewhat disillusioned with the Order. Some members seem to be concerned only with esoteric knowledge, some don't know what they want, a group that includes Pierre himself, and uh, some see the order as a social club, and others just never think about it one way or the other. 
There's a strikingly short passage here where Pierre leaves Russia and travels across Europe to visit other Freemason organizations. This months-long journey takes place over the course of a single double-return paragraph break. And when Pierre returns, he confronts his brothers with a new zeal for a radical new form of universal government. He wants the Freemasons to control the world, not via violent revolution, but via peaceful virtue. It's another one of Pierre's idealistic schemes. There's no content to this new program. There is only a concept, that of virtue. If one is virtuous, Pierre thinks, then all else simply follows. If a whole group is virtuous, and if that group can raise a significant portion of other men to virtue, then, well, that's all the world's problems solved right there. It's obviously naive, but it's also not obviously wrong. If everyone desired peace above all else, then there wouldn't be war. These sorts of truisms or platitudes may not seem up to snuff when compared to more intellectually or scientifically rigorous ideas, but it's hard to argue that they're untrue, just impractical. Aversion to political revolution in favor of the spread of personal virtue is common in Tolstoy's writings. We see this in Anna Karenina in Levin's confrontations with the aristocratic parliament. In the end, he finds that the only way he can improve the world as a whole is by improving that small world in which he exists, his local world. Tolstoy's non-fiction work, The Kingdom of God is Within You, while more radical in its anarchism and pacifism, promotes a similar idea. It promotes the imitation of Christ in all aspects of life. A metaphor he uses in that book is one of gnats in a cloud. It is difficult for one gnat to direct the path of the whole cloud from within. But if that gnat were to leave the cloud and start buzzing about a few inches away, perhaps a second gnat would choose to follow, and then a third. And eventually the whole cloud has shifted a little. Pierre is much too confused at this point to understand his program in such a way. He thinks that he can make everyone come with him just by asking them. The trouble is that he doesn't know where he's going and where he's trying to take them. His speech in St. Petersburg prompts much antagonism and criticism from the majority of the members. There are those who are on Pierre's side, but even these people seem to understand the idea in a different way than Pierre does. Pierre is, quote, struck by the diversity of human minds. He realizes for the first time, which frankly seems ridiculous for someone of his age, that no truth presents itself to two minds in quite the same way. Afterwards, we learn that Boris Drubetskoy has been initiated into the Freemasons. Boris, the up-and-comer. Boris, the status-chasing nobody. Boris, that boy whom Natasha loved at the beginning of our story, only because he was there when she needed someone to love. When a man like Boris joins your organization, you've got to start wondering what sort of organization you've got. Not only is Boris invading Pierre's religious and social life, but he has found a way into his marital life as well. Pierre lets Alain back into his life out of Christian forgiveness. He finds that Alain is quite popular in society and 
is considered smart and witty, even though he feels her to be shallow and stupid. In this way, he almost resembles Andre at the beginning of the book. Hélène is a little too familiar with Boris, and Pierre begins to feel an emotion akin to how he felt with Dolokhov earlier in the story. Pierre attends the ball, at which Andre and Natasha dance and fall in love. It is here that we see Andre and Pierre cross in their journeys, Andre on his way up from the nadir we saw him in before, and Pierre on his way down from his Masonic enthusiasm. Natasha, for whom the whole world at that moment is beauty and happiness, looks at Pierre and cannot even comprehend the sadness that she sees. How can such a nice man as Pierre be displeased with anything, she thinks. But Pierre is displeased. He was already on the way down before, but Natasha's betrothal to Andre makes his disillusionment total. He loves Natasha in his own strange way, but he also loves Andre. He's confused and melancholic. He returns to his idiot friends and his drunk silliness. He returns to being carried along by the waves of society, just another rich, eccentric, middle-aged man with an unfaithful wife. But what separates Pierre, at least in his mind, from the average socialite is his keen awareness of his discontent, his ability to see the truth of the world's evil and deceit. He knows that his new position and activity is an attempt to avoid looking at the depressing core of human existence. He feels it keenly at all times, constantly asking himself, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? In many ways, Pierre has returned to where he began, and yet now he is older, no longer innocent and naive, but jaded and cynical. He still believes in the possibility of good, but cannot formulate it. He can't understand how it's possible or how to participate in it. Pierre's journey has taken us once again to a familiar location. Tolstoy once again shows that he recognizes this location as a step and not a destination. Pierre's nihilism is not the final result of his ability to see the world as it really is. His nihilism and his depression are the results of distinctly not seeing the world as it is, but of only seeing parts of it and judging the whole by these parts. Pierre has closed himself off and immersed himself in what is familiar, believing the dull mundanity of society to be the sum total of human existence. He needs drastic events to pull him out of his stupor and reintroduce him to the world. It is here, I think, that we can recognize a certain power of fiction. While many of us become trapped in that same hell that Pierre traps himself within, it is rare that such dramatic events as befall Pierre in the latter third of the novel would ever happen to any of us. The idea here is not that such dramatic upheavals are required to break free from such a hell. It is that we, as readers of fiction, can use these imaginary upheavals to conceptualize our own journeys out of the depths of meaninglessness and despair. By coming along with Pierre, we engage in a spiritual journey, almost akin to Dante ascending from despondency to heavenly awakening. Pierre's journey is not so obviously metaphysical, or quite as straightforward, but perhaps it is that realism that makes it all the more compelling. 
The first event to pull Pierre from his stupor is Anatole's attempted abduction of Natasha. Pierre is outraged by this event because of its immorality, for sure, but also partially because of his own complicity in it. The abductor is his brother-in-law, after all, and his wife, Anatole's most obstinate defender. He has allowed himself to fall to their level, to live in their world, and it is only now that he realizes the depravity of this amoral world. Anatole cares nothing for other people. I mentioned earlier that, to him, life is just a game. Pierre, whether he expresses it in his actions or not, believes in virtue. He believes in doing right by other people. He considers it an objective truth that one should not engage in such actions, although when confronted by Anatole as to why, he has no particular answer. It is just a feeling that he has. Once again, we see Pierre prompted to a righteous moral rage, brought on in part by his own failing and his own inadequacy. We see him once again threaten to kill a Karagan, once again because of an event he feels is brought about by his own weakness. Notably, Anatole threatens to challenge Pierre to a duel, and this time Pierre refuses. He has realized that this way of dealing with personal disputes, the way favored by society, is inadequate, and leaves at one only feeling worse than before. Instead, he chooses to humble himself before Anatole, shows Christian forgiveness, and even loans him money with which to leave Moscow. Then, Napoleon invades Russia, and war enters Pierre's life. There has been war throughout the entire story, but for Pierre it has been at most an intellectual concern, something to argue about at dinner parties. It has been of theoretical political importance, but it has not been real in any material sense. Of course, nothing is truly material for Pierre, and his concern with the war is intricately tied to his strange divinatory beliefs that he's fated to kill Napoleon. By manipulating the number values of his name and Napoleon's, with a little finagling to help find the answer he wants, he determines that both Napoleon's and his name add up to the number of the beast, 666. At first, Pierre simply sits on this information, if, if we can even call it information. Then he decides to join the army, although, like usual, no one around him thinks this is a good idea. He rides out to the Battle of Borodino, mostly as a tourist, hoping to find out what these serious and somber men such as Andre are up to all the time. At first, he is delighted by the scene, the well-ordered troops arranged across the sun-swept hills, the smoke rising billorously in the air, the sound of cannons like thunder booming and echoing through the country. He wanders about as if in a trance, bumbling into people's way, trying and failing not to make a nuisance of himself. Eventually, he finds himself with a group of artillerymen in a redoubt, at first, the soldiers view him with disapproval, dressed as he is in full civilian garb, complete with a white top hat. But eventually, after seeing his total simplicity and seeming lack awareness of the danger of, posi of his position, they warm to him, thinking of him like another one of the camp's animals, wandering around like the many goats and dogs that accompany a traveling army. And they are correct, for... Pierre is as oblivious as any creature would be regarding the situation he is in. He views the battle as a spectacle, 
his naive view of war making it seem totally unreal and inconsequential. It is not until the redoubt is lost and the soldiers begin to retreat that Pierre becomes aware of any danger to himself. He comes face to face with a French officer, and they engage in an almost comical altercation. They grab at each other, each unsure what to do next, each equally frightened of the other. Pierre doesn't know whether he's taking the officer prisoner or whether he himself is being taken prisoner by the officer. Under the threat of a cannonball that whizzes inches from their heads, they each release their grasp and run back towards their friends. Pierre finds now that all the artillerymen he had been sitting and watching were now dead. Now they'll stop it, he thinks. Now they'll be horrified at what they've done. But of course, the war rages on. Pierre's excursion reveals to him the shallowness of how he had been living. It is not that he learns the heroic and honorable nature of war. Instead, it is that he realizes the true extent of suffering, the depths of pain that this world can heap upon us. In war, all the intellectual ideas he had been pursuing fall away. It is a material and base spectacle, almost a natural disaster, like a hurricane ravaging the land. He wishes only to return to the normal comforts of his everyday life. He feels that only there can he truly reconcile what he has seen and absorb it into an emotionally logical understanding. But there are no normal conditions anymore. He dreams a dream in which his Masonic teacher speaks to him from the dead and is trying to reveal something to him, something about the unity of all things, something about how we must all hitch together. Yes, Pierre thinks, hitching together, that's the key. But he awakes to find that these words are not those of his religious instructor, but instead those of his groom, telling Pierre that they must hitch the horses together and depart. This corruption of his dream, the material world seeping into his intellectual and spiritual world like dirty water into a clear stream, disturbs Pierre. He wishes deeply for these worlds to remain separate. He wants the material world to act only as material for the formation of his ideas. But here he is shown that the ideas can never be entirely separate, that they are always going to be influenced by the material situation, and that living a life in the real world is going to be most important. Upon returning to Moscow and finding that the Masons are being prosecuted for their unpatriotic and treasonous ideas of a universal love that knows no borders, Pierre disappears. The suffering brought on by the deaths he had witnessed at the battle, the suspected death of his friend André, the remarriage of his wife Hélène, Pierre does not know how to cope with any of this and chooses to run away to try to forget this life that he has known. For whatever reason, his first thought, while the rest of Moscow was fleeing for the countryside due to the imminent approach of the French, is to head over to his deceased Masonic teacher's home to organize his books. He locks himself in the library, isolated from the vicissitudes of life and war, absorbed in the memory of the man who had attempted to free him from such things. His desire to kill Napoleon returns, first as a fleeting fancy and then as an overriding obsession. 
He feels that this is the grand action for which he has always been destined, the fulfillment of the promise made by his larger-than-life stature and the numerology related to his own name. He must sacrifice himself and change the world. Pierre is, in this moment, absolutely insane. He distorts his perception of reality in order to fit his goal. He believes himself to be acting under the arm of providence, under a divine will, and to thus have no ego left at all. Of course, this divine will wishes only to carry out the exact decisions that suit Pierre's ego. He sets out upon his task. Wandering through occupied Moscow, Barely cognizant of the French soldiers watching or threatening him, he is aware only of his duty. The city is ablaze and suffering abounds, but Pierre is unable to see any of it until it quite literally throws itself at his feet. A woman accosts Pierre, explaining that she had lost her child amid the burning houses and begs him for assistance. All of a sudden, so suddenly that the book's narration does not even note it at all, Pierre forgets everything about the assassination and the grand decision that he has undertaken. He returns to Earth in a snap, sets off to find the lost child. Trundling through the burning wreckage, he finds the girl and returns her to the woman. Immediately upon doing so, he sees a few French soldiers harassing a woman nearby. His righteous indignation burns within him, as fierce as toward Hélène and Anatole or perhaps even fiercer, and this time it is the wrath of virtue, rather than the wrath of weakness. Oblivious to all else, he falls upon the soldier like a frenzied animal, and is quickly arrested. They find his dagger, the one that he wanted to use to kill Napoleon, and he's taken away and eventually sentenced to death. But who exactly sentences Pierre to death? The entire process seems to be the whim of bureaucratic chance, as midway through Pierre's interrogation, the general conducting it is interrupted by other matters, and orders Pierre to be taken away without clarifying whether he is to be pardoned or executed. Pierre does not know who to blame, or if anyone is to blame. It seems that no one has actively done anything, and yet the result of this chain of inaction is that Pierre, along with all his memories, thoughts, and feelings, is to be wiped from the earth. At the execution, too, as Pierre watches those before him tied to the post and shot, it seems that no one is really to blame, for no one, French or Russian, seems to understand what is happening. Pierre sees that they all wear the same confused expression, as if acting out a will that is not their own. It is the same as when he fought the officer in the battlefield, all these people thrust into war, acting as cogs in a giant and complicated mechanism, unsure why or how they've come to be the way they are. But Pierre is not killed. At the last moment, he is pardoned. There is no rhyme or reason to this pardoning, just as there is no rhyme or reason to his initial sentence. Among this large group of people, a decision was reached, not by any of them in particular, and yet not by the group as a whole either. Somehow, when it comes to masses of people, it starts to be that things just happen. More on this later. Pierre is now a prisoner of war, and 
and yet another absurdity, he is to be carried off with the retreating French army away from his home. The French have lost, they have barely enough supplies to keep their own forces alive, and yet the rules of war and justice insist that they bring along with them a large number of Russians, too. Russians who they cannot feed or clothe, but at the same time cannot legally execute or punish. They are just to be carried along, because, I mean, you can't just let them go. Pierre, in this confusion, meets his final spiritual guide. Unlike the sophisticated moral theologist that was his Masonic teacher, this man is a simple man. Tolstoy is greatly fascinated by the wisdom of the simple peasant, the folk wisdom that survives among the people of the countryside. Pierre's new friend, Platon, is an embodiment of this ideal, and every man who can cook, sew, make boots, and sing, who speaks in folkish proverbs that often contradict each other and yet are all apt and correct, who loves all that is before him and worries little about that which is not. Platon lives entirely in the moment, but this limited range of view does not cause him to get caught up in his troubles. He takes life as it comes. He's not always virtuous, because to him life is not an intellectual or spiritual pursuit, but simply a matter of survival. He will steal if need be, but he will also act graciously and kind if the situation permits. During his weeks in captivity, Pierre comes to understand, partially, the nature of his former problems. He had had everything, everything that money can buy. Good food, good drink, a large house, a comfortable bed, nice clothes. This was, to him, the default position. He had been handed all of this, and therefore never grew to appreciate any of it. It is only through privation that he realizes the luxury of the most simple aspects of life. A warm bath, a comfortable bed, a consistent supply of food. He had had all these, and yet had gone searching for something more, as if there was something further that could offer him the complete satisfaction he desired. Pierre, in the prison camp, is finally able to live in joy and peace. The complications of life are taken away, the intellectual games and the search for meaning, the complex social relationships of nobility, the visits and intrigues and political arguments, all these worries and anxieties are washed away. He realizes that, to a certain extent, André was right in saying that all of these searches for happiness were in vain, not because happiness is impossible, but because happiness in a way consists in something being removed, and not something being added. The freedom he had known before was a freedom that made choice impossible. The question of how to occupy your time when you can do anything is supremely complicated. The question of how to occupy your time when you can do nothing is quite simple. Pierre realized that Although he never would have guessed it, somewhere inside himself he has both the moral and physical strength required to survive such a difficult situation. His absent-mindedness, his simplicity, and his largeness that had all been detriments in his former life are now strengths. Simple and absent-minded, he easily grows to stop worrying about the material privations, 
and instead spends his time bumbling about, as he was always meant to do. Like on the battlefield, he returns to an almost animal existence, plodding along, grazing around as if looking at nothing and everything all at once. The soldiers at the camp see him as some sort of monk. And he is, he's a natural-born monk, a monk who has had no need for training. He was born to sit around and do nothing. Pierre comes to understand much about human life during his time as a prisoner, but very little of it is directly communicable. Any attempt to compress what he learns into words come off as cliched platitudes. We understand that there is a profundity to Pierre's revelations, not by being told directly what they are, for in the telling they sound simple and obvious, but by viewing the change they bring to him, the peace and calm that he is able to attain. He has a dream much like the one he had on the battlefield, and again he finds that the words that sound so important and meaningful are but the echoes of commonplace phrases being spoken around him. Pierre's captivity is the final step in his spiritual journey. It is there that he discovers how to live without denying himself, without questioning himself, and without allowing himself to be pulled around by whims both his own and those of society. Upon returning to a normal life, he loses himself in the simple insanity of his love for Natasha. Like Natasha at her first ball, he becomes incapable of perceiving or feeling malice, believing that the whole world is happy and wishes for him to be happy as well. Well, previously, his love for Natasha brought him guilt and doubt, now he allows himself to feel it fully, to be absolutely overflowing in it. In his love for everyone, he gains a whole new perspective on the world and everything in it, and when he later reflects, it is these new judgments that prove to be correct, as opposed to the complicated judgments he had made previously, based on social and logical considerations. Pierre's journey is one from complexity to simplicity. To Tolstoy, it is in simplicity that the greatest truths and happiness are to be found. The simplicity of the peasants, as opposed to the complexity of the rich elite. The simplicity of Christian love and forgiveness, as opposed to complex webs of animosity and revenge. But Pierre's journey is not linear and clear. It is a journey of false starts and false steps. He often thinks it is over, thinks that he has come to understand everything that there is to understand, only for all his new understanding to fall apart at the merest touch, like a house of cards. Pierre is a bumbler, but his bumbling proves ultimately to be an effective means of reaching happiness. In the end, it is that which everyone recognized in him from the very beginning, his kindness, that proves to be his most valuable attribute. His attempts at fitting into social life, or religious superiority, or political assassination, are the results of him following paths which are not his own, and which lead him to their own distinct ruins. The path of simple kindness was always there for him. He just never understood how to take it, or even that he would be allowed to take it. In this way, Pierre is the hero of War and Peace. He does not change the world, he 
does not win or lose battles, and he does not revolutionize the religious ideas of Europe. Instead, he finds out how to live a good life. He finds peace. For Tolstoy, the 1812 war between Russia and France is more than simply a historical backdrop. The wonder of this book is that it can provide us not only with this cast of deep and complex characters, each with their own meaningful journey, each nudging us closer toward understanding certain truths about human life, but that the grander narrative, that of the all-encompassing war that disrupts all their lives, also reveals and discloses these same truths. The sections of War and Peace that deal with the Napoleonic War are not mere historical accounts. To start, they don't always strictly adhere to the consensus of historical fact. In order to turn this mass of historical data into a meaningful narrative, Tolstoy must carefully manipulate the facts. It is interesting to note that the real historical figures in War and Peace feel much less real and distinct than the fictional characters. Tolstoy is much more heavy-handed with his historical figures, treating them primarily as puppets in the grand stage play he wishes to enact. Napoleon, in particular, is made completely ridiculous, and his Russian counterpart Kutuzov is made into a holy fool. This clash between the egotistical French mastermind and the tired Russian simpleton is the grand metaphor of the war. Napoleon and Kutuzov are nowhere near as interesting to follow as Pierre, Natasha, and Andre, or even many of the other side characters who populate the fictional Russian society of the novel. In fact, it's easy to say that the sections that focus on these historical figures and the nature of the war can become somewhat tedious. War and Peace is a rich book, absolutely dense with all facets of human life. But when the action takes place on a grand scale, much of that nuance and detail become lost. Unlike Pierre, who must discover himself through a long journey of ups and downs, Kutuzov begins and ends exactly as he is. The same is true of Napoleon. In this sense, they are hardly even characters, they are mere symbols. Yes, there are several funny moments showcasing Napoleon's incompetence and Kutuzov's rash ignorance, but, and this is obvious since it's a historical story, we already know how it's going to go. The ups and downs of the French campaign is not a story, it is an account. Tolstoy is writing for an audience who knows exactly how this will end. Thus, the drama has to come from elsewhere, namely the fictional characters whose lives are affected by the war. Tolstoy's recognition of this fact is clear throughout the book. His opinion of historical analysis and counterfactuals becomes explicitly clear midway through the book, and he never ceases to expound upon it. In his view, there is absolutely no point in wondering why one thing happened instead of another. There is no point wondering what would have happened if Napoleon had done this instead of that. It's over, he says. It happened. Napoleon acted the way he did because he had to. To have acted in any other way would have been to not be Napoleon. Napoleon's not a person. He's a historical figure. He's a concrete fact. Everything he did is now petrified. It is set in stone. We can only look at it as 
what it is. This view makes a sort of philosophical sense, but also leads to some pretty reductive assertions. For example, when attempting to elucidate why it was that Russia won the war, Tolstoy's argument seems to be that it's because the Russian people were Russian. They had the Russian spirit. They were defending their homeland. The counter-argument that all the other states Napoleon invaded were also defending their homeland is countered by Tolstoy in this way. Most of those people were Germans. Germans don't have the Russian spirit. They are pedantic and disunited. They view war as a logical game and not as a spiritual battle. In Tolstoy's view, war has no logic. It cannot be planned nor analyzed. He denies the possibility of military genius through his satirizing of Napoleon. Tolstoy's experience in battlefields has led him to believe that battles are pure chaos, that orders given by officers have no effect on what anyone will do, that maps and plans are meaningless once the first shots are fired. Everything, he believes, relies on the will of the common soldier. Either they want to fight and win, or they don't. There's no way to know why they want it sometimes and don't want it at other times. There's no way to tell in advance. If the will to fight isn't there, the best-delayed plans will inevitably fail. If the war does not make sense to the common people, they will not want to fight. Napoleon believes that the French will continue to fight forever. This is because he thinks the fuel they gather from his massive ego is infinite. Kutuzov sees the matter differently. He knows that the will to fight comes from the people themselves, not from him. He has a spiritual connection to the Russian people. He knows when they will fight and when they will not. He knows when the French will fight and when they will not. He plans his strategy accordingly. All his advisors say he is a fool, and perhaps if circumstances had turned out differently, they would have been right to say so. But we must remember, things could not have turned out differently. They can only have turned out one way, the way that they turned out. You can see how this can make for a pretty dry analysis of history. Tolstoy spends much of the book arguing for this fatalistic causality, and the later sections of the book certainly suffer massively for it. He makes his point during his descriptions of battles themselves, during Napoleon's scenes, during Kutuzov's scenes, during the myriad scenes in which officers sit around maps and give orders that have no material effect on the battle around them. But this is not enough. He then devotes further chapters, particularly in the book's interminable second epilogue, to repeatedly making this same argument. I would say that at least a hundred pages of the book are spent this way, a staggering amount that has a disastrous effect on the final leg of the book. If I had to make any criticism of War and Peace, it would be of this aspect. Clearly, these ideas were very important to Tolstoy. Perhaps he felt that they were more important than anything else in the novel. I think it can be easily argued in hindsight that this was something of a poor judgment. However, this is not to say that the parts of the book dealing with the war are without merit. When we are immersed in the action from the perspective of André or Pierre or even Nikolai and Petra Rostov, the evocativeness of 
Tolstoy's descriptions are unparalleled. Tolstoy knows from experience the chaos of the battlefield, the sights, the smells, the feel of it, and he captures it to a remarkable degree. The way that fear morphs into courage, the way that death becomes commonplace, the camaraderie that is formed among squadmates, all this is presented simply and yet effectively. But what Tolstoy also understands about war is that, while it can often feel all-encompassing, especially from a historical perspective, war also contains a good deal of mundanity and moments of serene calm. We see this when André is first wounded early in the novel. As he lies motionless on the ground, he realizes the beauty of the blue sky. He sees that while he has been focused on the action on the ground, he has ignored this grand drama being played out among the clouds. We see this as Pierre sits by and watches the artillerymen in their redoubt, oblivious to tactics and strategy and danger, just basking in the clockwork-like movements of the soldiers. We see this when Nikolai gets lost and finds himself in a silent and idle place just outside the battlefield. He meets a French soldier there. They look at each other and both run away, because it is only the context of the battlefield, with its smoke and its noise, and most importantly the mutual spirit of tens of thousands of men marching toward mutual destruction, that murder makes sense. Once you step away from this insulated zone, the whole idea seems absurd. As the French army nears Moscow, we are briefly taken north to St. Petersburg, where the war has maintained its unreality. They raise money and troops, they discuss the latest news from the front, they argue bitterly about strategy and politics, but all this is just a means of following the whims of fashion. Their homeland is being invaded, sure, but not here, not in St. Petersburg. Moscow is over 500 kilometers away. And so while this grand national epic is playing out, life in many places remains the same. Hélène worries about which man she wishes to marry, intentionally forgetting that she's already married, and carries out a conversion to Catholicism, simply because it might make her life a little more interesting. All this contrast, all this diversity of experiences relating directly or indirectly to the same historical event, is what makes War and Peace such an endlessly fascinating work. This is not an epic in the way that the Iliad or the Aeneid are epics. It is somehow even more epic than all that, an epic because it embraces that which is small and seemingly insignificant, along with that which is large and grand. It is the silence in War and Peace that gives meaning to the noise. It is the warmth of War and Peace that breathes life into the cold, cruel brutality that is war. War and Peace is the synthesis of the novel and the epic. It blends the everyday and the once-in-a-generation into a uniquely modern form of literature. In attempting to capture the French invasion of Russia in 1812, Tolstoy felt it necessary to capture it fully, from the highest general to the lowest soldier, from the fashionable society ball to the child's playroom from the city streets to the rural village, and everywhere in between. 
While doing so, he populates this world with nuanced and relatable characters, each with their own journey and struggles, acting as individual entities but all connected as part of an intricate physical and emotional network that permeates the entire society. In this way, Tolstoy makes history feel real, not just as a series of events that led to our current reality, but as a world in itself, which lives and breathes just as we do. He makes it all make sense, not in a simple and reductive way, but in a vast and cosmic way, each part contributing to the whole, and the whole contained within each part. War and Peace's grandiose title is not an overstatement. This book is the ultimate embodiment of both of these contrasting elements. It shows war imposing itself on peace, and peace imposing itself on war. This is true in both an obvious literal sense, but also in a figurative sense. We could say that Pierre, at war with himself and his own conceptions, eventually finds an inner peace in simplicity. We could say that Natasha, at war with her overpowering childhood emotions, finds peace in a more mature idea of love. We could say that Andre, hoping for glory in battle, finds peace in suffering and in death. But it's not war or peace. It's war and peace. It's these two aspects of our existence each contributing, in their own way, to our further understanding of ourselves, and pushing us forward in our spiritual journeys. This book doesn't tell us about Napoleon's invasion of Russia. It tells us about everything. It tells us about individuals, and it tells us about masses, and the way these two distinct forms of humanity interact and intersect. It tells us about killing each other, and loving each other, and forgiving each other. It tells us about trying to communicate, and often failing. It does this all in such a way that we don't even realize that it's doing this. At first glance, it seems to be quite a simple book. It's so immediately understandable, and everything in it just makes a lot of sense, and that's really the true genius of Tolstoy, his simplicity. He doesn't want to confuse us, he wants to communicate with us. He wants us to know something, and maybe what he wants us to know is something that even he doesn't know, something that can't quite be known, but only understood in some way. And the only way he figures he can communicate this is via a book that's not a novel or an epic or a historical chronicle, but some strange amalgamation of the three. He needs to create some new form, not to test his limits or prove his skill or his genius, but just because that's the particular form that this particular knowledge had to take. And that's all the time we've got for today for Balquell's books. This has been episode one of Balquell's books, in which I talked about War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Don't you forget that that's the book I was talking about, uh, otherwise you'll be very confused later on in life. Uh, thank you all for listening to this show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, I certainly enjoyed making it, and I enjoyed thinking about this book that I love a great deal, and I'm happy to share uh, my thoughts 
on this book with everybody. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the show, uh, you can do that on all sorts of places which you probably know about. So I'll leave you to go to those places, or at least your favorite one of those places, and subscribe to the show as a podcast. Uh, it's also on YouTube on my channel, which is Balkwell. That's B-A-L-C-K-W-E-L-L. Um, that's how you spell it. And uh, you can also visit my website, which was is uh, balkwell.substack.com. That's Balkwell in the same way as before. Also, the title of this program has the word Balkwell in it, so you can read it there, even copy and paste it from there. Uh, but my website has uh, uh, essays that I write. Uh, a lot of them are about literature. They're a little bit different than this, but they're very similar also. So if you like this, you'll, you'll like what I write on there. It's uh, it's fun. Uh my podcast is also hosted by Substack. Uh, I don't know if I need to mention that, but uh, it is. So thank them, uh, thank you to them for that. I am planning to do more episodes of this show. Uh, perhaps the next three episodes won't be as long as this one. Uh, War and Peace is, is a very large book, and uh, I had a lot to say about it, and I've had a lot to say about it for for years, so it all sort of came out here. Uh, perhaps later ones will be less long, uh, maybe even unscripted, some of them. Uh, the format is still uh, up in the air, so let me know what you think, if you think things about that. Um, yeah, I kind of, this one is long, but I kind of like how long it is, and uh, my friend told me to edit it. But he hadn't heard it, but he, he heard that it was long. He said, maybe you should edit that. And uh, I said, no, because uh, I like how long it is. Well, uh, yeah, that's all I got. So uh, goodbye.